Gracious Father, again, we come to this book we call First Kings. To some of the most iconic verses in all of the Old Testament. And Lord, uh, we often hear them preached or written about in isolation from the context to which they're written. And tonight, we want to take it in the context and hear what you have for us, challenge us with different ways of understanding how we relate to you, challenge us with a broader understanding of who you are, and challenge us to be followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, in faith and trusting you. And as we go through this, Lord, may we seek in all things to please you and glorify you. And we appeal to you to glorify yourself tonight through the illumination of your word by the Holy Spirit, by the challenging of our hearts and minds to be children of yours. And as we do that, may the world see what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 19 and 20 tonight. Just a reminder, next week uh, we're not going to be meeting Thanksgiving. So we're going to be meeting in two weeks from tonight. And at that time we'll be uh, finishing up uh, 1 Kings, doing chapter uh, 21 and 22. Um, And then obviously we'll continue on to 2 Kings. Really just, this is really one work. We just break it up into two. So we're in 19, continuing the story of Elijah and, and in some ways uh, Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel makes just an appearance at the beginning of our passage tonight, but she is very much over our passage. And if you remember right, we had just had that huge last week, uh, huge spiritual confrontation, one of the, the biggest uh, spiritual confrontations in all the Bible. That story has been talked about, preached, written about, has just become a a huge, iconic uh, moment in biblical history where uh, Elijah uh, confronts the uh, priests of Baal, all 450 of them, and defeats them. It's this great moment of, of triumph, of spiritual triumph, finding itself happening on earth as God reveals himself, and the, the priests of Baal are destroyed, and uh, it's this great moment of triumph. And we continue on in chapter 19. First Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, 
there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah does what we'd all do in that great moment of spiritual triumph when God has revealed himself in a powerful way that we see that God wants to work through us and he has conquered the greatest uh, enemy of, of God on the earth and, and he does this great work and then some queen threatens him and he whimpers and runs away as far as he can. It's been a topic of, of, of much uh, discussion and debate for centuries. What's going on? What's Elijah's problem? I mean, he just sees this fantastic triumph. He's at the center of it. God works through him. He has, he has turn, potentially turned an entire nation around. And yet the minute a queen says, I'm going to kill you. He freaks out and starts running. And just, just so we understand what we're talking about, do you have your maps? If you, if you are new or something and never got a map, there's a couple of maps back in the, uh, behind the soundboard. Now, I know you can't see this, but I'm just going to, if you take your map out and we can compare it, okay? So he's up here, Mark Carmel, okay? That's where the big battle happened. Okay, here's Samaria. That's where Jezebel is. Okay. So he runs, okay, all the way down to Beersheba, right here. But he doesn't stop there, okay? He goes on down into the wilderness. So that's past, past Kadesh Barnea. He's eventually, as we're going to see in the next passage, ends up to, in Mount Sinai or Horab, where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, all the way down here, okay? He's, he's as far away as he can get from her from when the battle took place. And he's running in fear. Fear for his life, as we're going to see. How can he do that? How can you take victory, God revealing himself to you, how can you take that and immediately forget about it and go as far away from your trouble as possible. He was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life. Well, let's continue on and, and see this play out, this running um, from trouble. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshai you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahalah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we get this picture. Elijah's running. He, he gets to a spot and, and he's weary. God gives him food, you know, provides provision for him. Because he knows he's going to keep on running. I mean, you just get this. He's running because he doesn't trust God. His faith is not great enough. And God ministers to him to help him keep running. I mean, that's like you're, you're, you're I mean, that's the mercy of God. I mean, God could say, why are you running? Stop. Turn back. But no, he, he through an angel, ministers to him, gives him food so he can run even further, and runs essentially to the ends of the earth from his perspective. Now, we can't miss the symbolism here. He's going back to what? To where it all started, right? To, to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, same thing. Where the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law was given to Moses. So he's going back to the very beginning. And he gets there. And one of my favorite lines in, in all of First and Kings. God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, 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 I, I'm not sure. No, he, do, he doesn't do that, right? What does he do? What we all do. Well, I'm really, I'm really the only one that really, I'm jealous for you, and I'm the, he starts what? Arguing his case. Really? I, they aren't, and I am, and they're, and, and they're trying to kill me, and, and really, yeah, whoa, that's not the point. What are you doing? I'm afraid. He doesn't say it. I'm afraid, and, and I don't believe you can keep me safe. And God goes, really? Hmm. Well, I, I, okay, just stand there for a minute. 
you know, phenomenal wind comes by. Just, whoa, we're going, wow, that's the power of God right there. No, God's not there. Big earthquake comes. I mean, just amazing movement of earth. Just crunch. Oh, wow, okay, this is, no, God's not in that either. And a great fire comes. This has got to be the power of God. Fire is often the symbol for God, right? And it, no, that's not God either. And then the term that most of us know, the small still voice. This is where it comes from. This is the passage where that term comes from. It was the translation in the King James Version. Here we have a low whisper. Same thing. What does it take to know about an earthquake? Any kind of, right? What does it take to hear a small whisper? I mean, if I'm sitting in the front row and and I whisper, and you're out in the gathering place by the door. Do you hear me? No. What does it take to hear a small, still voice? Closeness. And in this case, relational closeness. Often we see characters in the Bible asking God to scream at them. In essence, New Testament, show me a sign. The Old Testament, show us your power. And God says, what I want to do is I want to speak to you through relationship in a small, still voice. Out of the intimacy of our relationship. So close that you can hear me when I whisper. Remember the Israelites when they were at Mount Sinai or Orab, what happens? God reveals himself and they shrink back. And they say, whoa, we don't want to get close to that. Hey, Moses, you go in and you go talk to God because we're afraid to get very close. One of the problems of the, the nation of Israel relationship with God, I mean, it's disobedience, there's a lot of things, but their unwillingness to be in close relationship with God. They were always giving God this. I tell you what, you give us the law and we'll keep the law, but we're going to keep you at a distance. Because we're afraid of you, but not the way we should be. We fear, we're afraid of you, but we don't fear you, if you understand what I mean. You see, God wants a relationship. He, had a, he wanted a relationship with the Israelites, and they never really understood that. And he wants a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. We talk about it all the time. Now, it doesn't mean that relationship doesn't mean that we don't fear him. We fear him. I know we, try, we struggle with love and fear, but we need to do both. 
but we need to hear him. And to hear him, we need to be close. So Elijah sees that. And when he asks him again, he repeats all exactly what he said before. And what does God do? He's got to shake his head, give us the classic New Testament, ye of little faith. He doesn't do any of that. He recommissions him. He says, I'm going to appoint two kings to you. Now, now as we go through the story and get to 2 Kings, we're going to realize he doesn't appoint those kings through Elijah. He does it through Elisha, but that's a continuation of Elijah's. I know, J-H, J-H, gets us confused. It's a continuation of Elijah's ministry. As we're going to see yet tonight, he's going to appoint, anoint, choose, put a cloak on, Elisha, who's going to continue Elijah's ministry. So even though Elijah doesn't actually appoint these two or anoint these two kings, he does through Elisha. And then he says, and you're going to appoint Elisha. How does that, Elijah, who's got a what? What does he feel like right now? He's standing before God and God goes, what are you doing here? He's got to feel about what? Yeah. You ever been there? Have you ever seen God do something powerful in your life and, and you and you acknowledge it's God and you're just amazed and maybe healed you or changed something or found you a job or or did something amazing in your life and then what three months later you're doing something and you're going oh you gotta be kidding me where's my faith when God's revealed himself in such a powerful way, where's my acknowledgement of God and my trust in him? Where does it go? And just like with Elijah, he just calls out to us. He doesn't beat us over the head usually, unless that's what we need. And he calls out to us and recommissions us as his child. If we're willing to repent and turn to him, he, he says, come back to me. And that's what he does with Elijah. He says, Elijah, I'm not done with you. In fact, let me tell you what I'm going to do through you. Now, what I need you to do is I need you to turn around and go from down here all the way up to the wilderness of Damascus up here. Long way. Long way. And that's going to require either going through or skirting the nation of Israel. As we're going to see, Jezebel has not forgotten about Elijah just because he ran over a thousand miles away. So he's got a, yeah, okay. Take a deep breath. Remind himself who God is. Remind himself that he has been commissioned by God. And turn his eyes northward. And start going up to Damascus. 
And God reminds him, you feel all alone. You think you're the only one left. But as God always does, as God always does, there's a remnant. There are 7,000 who have not bent their knee to Baal, have not worshipped Baal, who under great pressure from the king and the queen have somehow maintained their faith, kept their eyes on Yahweh, and refused to worship the king's God. And they are going to be who God uses to show his might. Let's go on to the call of Elisha, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. So Elijah, as he had been instructed, found Elisha, and puts a cloak over Calls him, essentially. Elisha goes after Elijah, acknowledges the call, and says, let me go home and basically wrap up that entire life and close that door. So that's what he does. When he says, kiss my mother and father, he means essentially, goodbye, I'll never see you again, I'm off. And he is the example of commitment, right? It isn't enough that he, and he sells the farm. He, he kills the oxen, destroys the plow as a sacrificial offering to God and, and feeds the people. He is all in. There's no going back. I mean, there's nothing to go back to. He is fully committed. Now, I got asked several times today about how does that compare to the person in the New Testament who wants to follow Jesus and wants to go back and bury his, his father, and he says, no, you either got to follow me now or not. And people say, well, isn't that the same? No, it's totally different. Let me explain that. In the Old Testament, in Elisha's case, he is completely, 100%, he sold the business. He's burned his house. He's, he said goodbye forever to his family. He, there is absolutely 100% commitment. What in the New Testament, what the man wants to do is he wants to fulfill the tradition, the law, the Pharisaical law, the law of the Pharisees about custom. And God says, or Jesus says, if you're going to serve tradition, custom, the law, Pharisaical law, instead of me, it's not going to work. Don't do it. You have to give up your ways and accept my way. What Elisha's doing is giving up everything to be used by God. And Elisha is going to be the continuation of Elijah's ministry. We're going to see Elijah go here. He's going to die in 2 Kings. And then Elisha picks it up 
and fights even, well, in some ways, even greater battles in the future. So let's go on to tw uh, chapter 20. 1 Kings 20, Ben-Adad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up, and closed in on Samaria, and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Adad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the house of your servants, and lay hands on whatever pleases you, and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now, and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Adad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Adad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself like he who takes it off. When Benadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. The natural enemy of, of Israel, besides Judah, is Syria. Syria's up here. There's the border, okay? So, Syrian king. He does what kings do. The most powerful place usually is the capital, which is right there, Samaria. So he goes and starts raiding throughout um, Israel, showing his power, shows up at the essentially the doorstep, though obviously he's a ways away because of the journey that these messengers have him do. He comes to the doorstep of the, the capital and, and, you know, we've seen this already, demands tribute, plunder, whatever you want to call, pay me off to go away. And that establishes often a, a vassal overlord relationship, Okay. So sometimes it's just pay me off one time and I'll go away and I don't want to mess with you. Sometimes it's pay me off and keep those payments going all the time. We're an ongoing relationship, okay? Often that's considered a covenant. So Benadad comes down, gets to Samaria, says to Ahab, okay, you know, silver, gold, wives, and children. You know, the usual request, you know? It's your everyday king-to-king -king plunder request. Ahab says, okay, you, you got me. You're already showing your might and your strength, and, and I can't defeat you. So I acknowledge, and this is important, Ahab acknowledges that he can't defeat Benadad. He says, okay, I'll pay you. Benadad then says, no, nah, no, nah, that's not really what I'm after. I'm, over, I'm after total conquest. We're not going like vassal 
overlord, we're going, I'm going to go in and totally control your capital. I'm going to take whatever I want to take. My people are going to be in your capital. See, the, uh, the idea is I'm in my city capital, and I take my money and give it to a messenger, and they send it out to you. But you don't breach the wall. You don't come in and threaten me. But what Ben-Adah is saying is, no, my men are going to go in there, and they're going to take anything they want. In fact, anything they can find that you value, they're going to take. Well, usually the next step in those situations are they kill the king. So Ahab knows, now nah, this, I, no. He gets his elder, they're going, no, you can't do this. We can't do this. We're going to have to fight. So he tells Benadah that. And, and Benadah says, okay. He does, takes him pretty lightly, and he, and he makes a statement that, you know, really, you can't defeat me. And, and a great line, I think, from Ahab says, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. So it never says, you're boasting at the beginning of the battle is fine. But let's see how you're boasting at the end of the battle when the armor comes off. So that's the stage is set. Men to your positions. Here we go. Verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the district, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Benadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the thirty-two kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Benadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria, he said. If they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Benadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots, and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Well, the first thing that strikes is Benadiah is obviously not taking this, taking them very seriously. He's essentially, you know, sitting in his tent. That's what a booth is. It's a tent. You know, partying up, getting drunk. 
And so uh, he, he's taking it lightly, and he, down a ways, he says, take them all alive. Well, when you fight a battle and you're told to take them alive, that just made your task much more difficult. So prophet comes, and we're going to see a number of prophets in this, in this uh, chapter, and we're not given any names. A prophet comes to the king and says, you're going to have victory today. God's going to give you victory. Now, for us, we're going, you got to be kidding me. Ahab is such a, uh, and you're going you're gonna to fight for Ahab? You're going to be on his side? Remember, this is the guy that brought Baal and all the Baal worship in the country. This is the guy is the worst guy to date that we've had. And you're going to fight for him? Why? Don't you want to ask that? Have you ever asked why, God? Now, God might say, you know, uh, should I tell you about all the things you've done wrong and yet I fight for you? Because God fights for his people. God fights his people up until the point he what? Doesn't fight for his people or up until the point when he what? Fights against his people. Rarely in the Bible do we see God absence a battle. Generally, he's on the side of his people. As we're going to see In several chapters into two, he's going to fight against his people. And often he's sitting there trying to teach them something. So he tells Ahab, no, I'm going to fight for you. Not so much for you, but for my people. Okay. And you're going to have victory. And I love this. Ahab goes, really? How are we going to do that? By whom? And he lays out this whole plan. He's going to take the the 232 governors and they're going to lead what? The 7,000 that have never bent a knee to Baal. The 7,000 righteous men against the thousands and thousands and thousands of the Syrians. And they're going to prevail. And they're going to prevail in a powerful way. But the man of God says what? Don't kid yourself. The Syrians are going to be back. And they're going to be back in a whole lot more powerful way. Because they are not not taking you lightly any longer. They're going to come back in the spring, which is when kings go to war. They're going to be back in the spring, and you better be ready. And so on the Syrian side, Benadad's going, like, what just happened? And one of his advisors says what? Well, they're gods, okay? Think how they think. Their gods are gods of the hills. That's why we lost. We're going to go to the plains and fight them there because our God's more powerful there. What a huge mistake. Once you say to God, well, obviously, God, you aren't strong enough or you're not the God over this or you're not the God over that or obviously you can't do anything. Not a good place to find yourself. But that's how they draw it up. Okay, go get an army, a bigger army, and we're going to get them into lure them into the plains. We'll look where that is, and we're going to destroy them because we figured out their weakness. 
Because there's no way 7,000 can stand up against us. So clearly it was a divine battle and we were on the wrong terrain for our God versus their God. And so they wait till spring and the big battle starts, starting in verse 26. In the spring, Benadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days, that on the seventh day the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Benadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Benadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Benadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Benadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So spring comes. Massive army. Syrians have a massive army. It just fills everything around this valley. And just to show you where we're at, we're right, right down here. Okay. Here's the capital. So it's right down here. Okay. So they're in the valley area. There's the river. Do you see the river? Okay. And they're in the valley area where their God, they believe, is strong. Overwhelming force. Out comes, and I love this line, two little flocks of goats. Wow. Let's make no, let's have no doubt whose battle this is. Two little flocks of goats against all those Syrians. And why is God doing this? He's doing it to show who he is. Make no mistake about this. He is showing the Syrians and the world who he is. And so the battle is just overwhelmingly a victory for the Israelites. 100,000 foot soldiers, 27,000 men were fallen by a wall that fell on them. Benadad flees and, and goes into an inner chamber, the, the keep of a, of a city. And there, 
Israelites come and, and surround him. And, and his advisors say, our only hope is to plead for mercy. So they clothe themselves in, in a very humble way, in a way that basically is the white flag of their time. And they're going to appeal to the mercy of Ahab. And, and they come out, they appeal for mercy. Ahab uses the, the magic word, brother, which designates that he's willing to covenant. Now, we're not talking about, like, partners. <laughs> we're talking about that kind of covenant. So Benadiah comes out, and he invites him up in the chariot. That's like, come into my office. It's a good sign. Brother, come into my office. You're going, okay, okay, this is going to go well. This is going to go well. And so, essentially, he's sitting there going, okay, what are you going to offer me? Now, what an amazing turn of events. Remember, not that long ago, Benadiah is outside the capital of Samaria saying, give me all your gold, give me all your silver, all your wives and your children. And Ahab says, yeah, because I can't beat you. Not that much longer now, he's defeated him. And Benadiah is saying, okay, take all the cities back. You open up all the markets. In other words, you can basically, you know, take money from us. Total, complete turn of events. And Ahab says, oh, sounds good to me. Now I'm the overlord instead of the vassal. I'm the one that's taking the spoils of this battle. I'm the victor. So yes, I will cut this deal because it benefits me and makes me over you. Did we just forget something? Did we forget who fought this battle? Did we forget what kind of war this was? This wasn't a war between two kings. This was a holy war. This is a holy war where God is showing the world his power and his might. This is Jericho. This is I will take the spoils. And Ahab finds out just a tad too late or doesn't find out, but he actually totally ignored the truth that he knew and is reminded of that truth in this last passage. Verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, 
because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. I love it when prophets act out what they're going to what they're going to tell the person. We see this uh, in the uh, many places in the Old Testament. We're going to see we're going in January when we're done with Romans here at the end of the month. We're going to do uh, a series on Christmas in December, and then we're going to go to Isaiah in January, and we'll be there oh maybe a few weeks. It's a big book, and we're going to see it in there where they, where he acts out these these things he's telling them. So this prophet comes and. Tells this guy to strike him so that he'd have a wound and the guy won't strike him and, and so God kills him. I know we all just shut. How do you not fear God? When you don't do what God says, bad things happen. How do we not fear God? But we move on because that isn't the main focus of the story. So he does. The next guy wounds him. He puts the bandage on. Tells it, you know, comes looking like he's been to war. He tells him his story about letting that prisoner escape. And he sets the king up, right? I mean, just like Nathan and, Nathan and, uh, and David, just like we see so many times. And, and Ahab, what? Just takes the bait, right? Well, then you should die for what you feel. Oh, well, okay. No, that's what you did, Ahab. I, God, remember, fought the battle. You knew you couldn't fight the battle. You acknowledged you couldn't fight the battle. You surrendered before the battle even stopped, started. I fought the battle first because of my people, second because the Syrians did not acknowledge who I was. And yet at the end of the day, you cut the deal for yourself. Don't acknowledge that's a holy war. Don't kill Benadab, even though that would be Deuteronomic law, would clearly call for that. And instead you did what would profit you. So because of that, yeah, you shall die. But as we're going to find out next two weeks, the next passage or the next chapter, that sentence is stayed for a reason. But your people are going to get wiped out. Now, there's many reasons why the nation of Israel gets totally demolished and wiped off the face of the earth. But the sins of Ahab are clearly one reason. And so what does he do? Does he appeal? Does he repent? Does he plead for mercy? Does he say he'll change his ways? He pleads with God and said, no, God, I now understand. No, he sulks, goes home, and feels sorry for himself. We ever do that? Does God ever try to get our attention? Say, no, turn. Turn back to me. Allow something to happen in our lives that, that should bring our attention to the fact that we need to turn back to God. And instead of doing that, we feel sorry for ourselves. We sulk. We go, woe is me. Why does this happen to me? I don't deserve. That the mercy of God seeks to draw us back 
to the source of all goodness, back to everything that's right for our good. All right, grab a Bible and go in your discussion group.